0: Welcome to the Anthropology in Business podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts, and today I'm here with Amy Goldmacher. Amy is an anthropologist, book coach, author, and a research consultant, having consulted for many years, Um, So Amy, thanks for coming on. Would you mind by, would you start by sort of letting everybody know how you came into anthropology?
1: Sure. Uh, First, thanks for having me. This is a great, great opportunity. Um, So my undergraduate major was anthropology. Um, I was fascinated by why people did the things they did, and I thought anthropology could answer those questions. So I majored in it graduated college, and then uh, I was hoping, I thought I might get a job in advertising with my anthropology undergraduate degree, um, but that didn't pan out. I ended up um, getting a job at a publishing company, and I worked for an editor as an editorial assistant, and I really enjoyed it because I was working on books and talking with authors and working on their manuscripts, and I thought um, for someone who loved books, this was this was a great opportunity, um, and it wasn't until years after that, five years or so, that uh, I decided, okay, maybe it's time to get back into anthropology. And then I went to um, Wayne State University in Detroit, which has the only PhD program in business anthropology in the country.
0: Yeah, and I want to ask about that. But, you know, there's something interesting there in that. So, you took the break, which I had also had a break. I had a break in between my business Degree And then I went back for anthropology, but nonetheless, I had a break and I felt that the second time around was much more productive than mm. even the first graduate degree around. And so, you know, just cause you have something to contribute. So I'm curious to know one, why, uh, you know, why after five years did you decide to go back? And two, do you have any sort of opinion for anybody listening that like, should they take a break? Should they go straight through?
1: Um, all right. So uh, <clears throat> I'll answer the, the personal part of it first. Um, I, it was because of the job I was doing. I was actually in sales at that point because the way to be an editor was to work in sales. Um, so I was doing that. I enjoyed my job. I got to go talk to professors about courses they were teaching and try to convince them to use books from our catalog. And while I was doing that, it really reminded me of anthropology because I was talking to you know natives in their exotic environments and um, trying to solve their problems with the tools of anthropology. And I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to solve business problems with anthropology. So that inspired me to go to graduate school, and I think, in general, having um, time away from anthropology and school was really good for me. I, you know, I worked. That was my full time job. I got a lot of skills doing that, so I recommend that part of it. Um, but I think it's a very personal decision. I think a lot of people want to go right from undergrad to graduate, and that's fine, too. Um, I think it's just it's a matter of choice and being deliberate about it. And, you know, if you need to work and earn money for a while before you can go back to graduate school, that's fine, too. It certainly won't do you any harm. I do think that um, it just made me aware of how different my career trajectory was from other people, because by the time I got my Ph.D. and re-entered the workforce— I was sort of on par with people who were about 15 years younger, so like it just took time to get a graduate degree and to establish myself in the field. Um, whereas a lot of people did that right out of college. Um, so it's just a matter of choice and trade-offs. You just have to think about, you know, it, how important is working for a while? How important is doing things while I'm young? How important is whatever whatever your personal goals are? And how does that um, how does that weigh against uh, going to graduate school, which is a big commitment?
0: Yeah. Great. Yeah. The trade-off piece is, is, really important there. So thanks for bringing that up now in terms of your, your program. So as you mentioned, Wayne state, um, you know, essentially, yeah, I, I don't know if they make, uh, well, let me know. I, do they actually say that the program is a business anthropology or is it an applied anthropology with a focus in business anthropology?
1: It's actually a four field anthropology degree. Um, with a focus in business anthropology, or uh, they also specialize in a couple of other subfields.
0: Got it. And so, did you pick that intentional link because of the business anthropology option?
1: Yes. I knew knew that I wanted to focus on organizations. I knew I wanted to focus on U.S. business. Um, Yeah, that was uh, a deliberate choice. I was looking for very applied programs.
0: And I, in my case, I went to UNT for the same reason. Yeah. And I have found that, you know, uh, aside from Wayne State, there's not many programs uh, at the PhD level that are really um, very overtly applied. With mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience? And for maybe anybody who's trying to find a program, maybe just tell us a little bit about the Wayne State opportunity.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think that if you know what you want, that will stand you in good stead. So like, no, just whether it's medical anthropology or applied or a two-year program versus a four-year program, um, full funding versus partial funding. I think the more, you know, what's available to, to you and what you need to be able to accomplish it, that would be very good for you. I would say a hundred percent look for funded programs. It's really hard to go through graduate school, not making, not earning any money and having to pay for your education. So I don't know what the state of, um, funding is today, but wherever you can find funding, go for it. Um, For me, something that was important was the applied focus. I wanted to take a lot of applied classes. I wanted a lot of applied opportunities. And I did get that through Wayne State. And I'm sure other programs have really good um, connections to industry that students can take advantage of. I think that would be something important to think about. Mm
0: -hmm. And so did you have... Aside from your dissertation work, did the courses have applied projects in them that you we know, would, in a sense, contribute to a portfolio?
1: I, I think at the time I was at Wayne State, not a lot. I think it has improved since, um, and we can talk. A little bit later, and this would probably fall under advice: how to frame anything you might do in the classroom that's not applied as mm-hmm. something applied. So at least you can demonstrate a track record of this is how I approach research problems. Um, I think al- nowadays, I think there there are really good instances of classes that are tied to industry, um, and. Also internship opportunities and um, research assistantships. I was lucky in that I got to work in um, an engineering department as a research assistant. Uh, so the work I was doing for that position was very applied. I was working with an automotive company locally, working with their engineers on you know, problems they were trying to solve at work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was really good experience and helped um, bulk up my resume and things that I could talk about with potential employers.
0: Yeah, that's great. So... So, okay. So fast forward. So you graduate, you had said that, you know, because you had went back later, you were more or less sort of, um, you know, competing against people who were, you know, younger than you at, at a sort of similar level. So did that pre- uh, present any challenges or opportunities, maybe, you know, anything that you learned from that?
1: That's a that's a great way to frame it. Um, I, I do think that some of the context is important. I Graduated in 2010, which was sort of on the end of the last recession. And so the job market was terrible, uh, especially in Detroit, especially for people with advanced degrees and highly specialized and maybe a little abstract fields. So uh, there were just very few research jobs at that moment, um, but it eventually came back. And um, I think it was really good for me to work with people who are younger and um, sort of fresher um, there's a lot of energy, a lot of um, collaboration. I mean, there was basically a generation gap. So it was really interesting to see how this current generation of of young adults worked and how they communicated and their, their work style. So that was kind of fun to be a part of. And it was fun to almost be a peer, even though I was old enough to be their babysitter back in the day.
0: <laughs> babysitter, that's a good one. <laughs> So a much
1: older babysitter yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, obviously it's worked out, and so you've now had a long career in in you know consulting and so did you, when coming out uh, or when going into the program, did you already want to be an independent consultant, or were you thinking that you would go back to some organization you know
1: I originally thought that i would um I would work within an organization, it was kind of my goal to be. Uh, you know, a researcher within a big company and working on the the stickiest problems. Um, But I also thought that just in case I wanted to work for myself someday, I wanted to have the PhD credential just to make that distinction. I think people, I had the impression that people were going to look for that if they were going to hire an independent consultant. But um, going into academia was never my goal. So I Mm -hmm. I went into it thinking, this is what I want to get out of it. This is the direction I want to go.
0: Out of curiosity, the comment there about you know you think maybe um, people are looking for you know looking for the PhD from an independent consultant. Did you find that in your at least in your own experience? Did you find that to be true or not?
1: I think it had its positives and negatives. I mean, people just make a lot of assumptions about what a PhD means for better or for worse. I, I got sometimes a lot of resistance, thinking that I was an academic and wouldn't be able to work at the speed of industry or come up with actionable results. Um, and I also, I, I could see that there was a lot of value in um, getting a degree in a shorter amount of time. And I, I personally think that, you know, people with two-year degrees, master's degrees, um, they're just as capable as a Ph.D. Uh, graduate. Um, and... In some ways, more capable because they, they probably have worked on applied projects and shorter-term projects and had very focused outcomes versus the Ph.D., which is in essence an academic degree. So you're you're trained to work in academia as a Ph.D. Uh, student versus a master's level student. You're trained to go out into the workforce. Yeah,
0: and so in your consulting work. Um, I'd like to maybe dig into like, you know, starting that process. You know, oftentimes it comes up, the question comes up like, you know, how do you find your first client or even how do you keep the pipeline full? And so what did you do, you know, when you're trying to kick everything off? How did you approach that?
1: That was really tough because I really didn't have any experience starting or running a business and I didn't get any of that from my academic program. So I made a lot of mistakes and just was like, well, this is what I think I should do. And I got a lot of advice from people who had done it, so that was really helpful. I did find that um, you can't just expect that someone's going to walk in to your storefront and order an anthropologist the same the way they would a donut. It's It's more like they have to figure out they have the type of problem that an anthropologist can solve. And the way I learned how to do that was just having conversations with people. I would find people that I was interested in um, what they were doing, what they were working on, just ask them, uh, what are the challenges you're facing? What, what? How does research fit into your business? What do you know about your users? Where, what do you wish you knew? Um, and sometimes it would take several years for those people to come back and be like, we, we talked once and what you said stuck with me and now I have a problem that I think you can solve. So it took a while to make those connections, build those relationships, and I, I don't think what I know now is that the sales cycle is long; it could be years long, and I certainly didn't know that at the time. So, seven months into it, when I didn't even have a client yet, I was like, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble." But you know, it was the it was having met people and talked with them, and keep checking in with them, and having those conversations—not sales calls, but just conversations—that ended up leading to um, to projects and um, long term relationships.
0: And how much of that those conversations was. Was anthropological, or was, or were you, in, you know, speaking business speak, just trying to understand their needs?
1: Uh, it was probably more business speak than anthropological speak, um, but you tried to squeeze it in there. So, of course, mm-hmm. everybody wants to know, like, what's anthropology? What's that like? How does that fit in with business? And you have to come up with ways of answering that and using the language that they're using so that they can understand the relevance. Otherwise, it's just some abstract concept, and they use their, you know, however they think of anthropology in their heads, whether it's Lara Croft or Indiana Jones. Um, you have to kind of figure out how to how to communicate with them so that they can put aside those stereotypes.
0: Sure. Did you, in that period, do anything else? Um, you know, I know when when reading about your book coaching services, you speak of, like, project management, right? So, and how important that is in that process. And so were you doing anything, say in that like seventh month period of time or that early stage to learn other business skills outside of um, just outside of just sort of going through the process?
1: I don't think so, but that would have been a very smart thing to do. Um, I think the the best thing I did for myself was finding local meetups back when meeting up was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, And just Trying to meet people. Uh, there happened to be UX user experience meetups locally, and I just, I knew instinctively that user experience would be something an anthropologist could do, so I went to these meetups and met a lot of people that way. Um, also design, I guess because I had worked in, you know, as a researcher in design fields the design community was something else I knew had a connection to research. So I saw those as kind of low-hanging fruit, like, okay, these people know about research already, so I can probably make connections there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. But you also did, and we'll come back to to the UX work, but you also have done um, workplace consulting as well, organizational. organization, I'm not sure how you want to frame it. But so were you... You know, were you interested in UX and sort of, you know, organizational from the beginning? Or, or, you know, like, did you you always intend to consult on both? Or did, you know, what was the process like there?
1: Um, I think I was just like, I'll take whatever. Um, I just had this faith that um, there were problems that research can solve and sort of blindly went into it. Uh, which is not entirely a bad thing, but I mean, I could have probably been more strategic about it. But I think just having that kind of blind, stubborn faith um, served me well in the, in the long run. Um, I definitely, there's a creative aspect to design problems and design research problems and user experience problems that I really like. Workplace and organizational issues, they're a little bit, they have a lot of constraints on them. And that's kind of hard to deal with. Um, so, for example, um, like working at an automotive company that's been around for 150 years, there's a lot of structures and guidelines and rules and mm-hmm. regulations, and it's just, it just constrains people. It constrains how they act and believe and the work they do, and it's it's a little bit less creative than design, which is by its own definition, like, super creative.
0: Sure. Did you, you know, at any point in your... And I'm more much more in the design space. Um, you know I think organizational lends itself to product management and try to bring in some of what I've read into that role. But clearly in like you know the design anthropology space and applying that to UX. So I'm curious, have you found any ways to apply you know like a, a sort of a design anthropology sort of paradigm to organizational? And by I, that, I, I maybe I mean if I could, you know, just like you yeah. know, the sort of the idea of right of co-creating, right? I mean, of of intentionally sort of, I mean, you know, creating change by you know working with you know those uh, those individuals, you know, really sort of bring them into the process and helping them like define the research and define like you know sort of some yeah. designed sort of outcome, if you will. Even if it's, I don't mean an artifact, but like a process.
1: Yeah, and I think the the fields, the various fields, have evolved. Um, in the last 10 or 15 years maybe to be more collaborative and creative and break down silos and all those things. And I I think what you said about um, inviting them into the process really helps because I think the way it used to be was, you know, engineers thought about the world a certain way and, uh, you know, they didn't need to understand their user before they built anything. But I think that's very different now. Even in the automotive companies, I think everybody wants to put the user, the human first or at the center. And that, that means business, engineering, design, all have to come together.
0: So in your workplace, um, anthropology, uh, matters video, which I'll link, you know, in the show notes, great YouTube video for anybody to check out. There is, um, you make a comment in there somewhere, something along the lines of, sometimes you have to, you know, do a little work up front to understand Mm. what I'll say is like the problem space. Uh, even it sounded like you were implying like, you know, even to do it for free, right? You know, if you're going to sort of meet with the stakeholders in the beginning and they're coming to you, they oftentimes think, you know, they have problem X, but maybe really they have problem Y and it's your job to sort of figure that out, which I completely agree with. But you also did, I think, I think you actually uh, explicitly said like, sometimes you might have to do the work for free, which is, um, you know, there's probably varying views on that. And we deal with this, you know, all the time in our in our world, right. And and many of us do, but like, if you're going to build a complex software product without some discovery, you know, you can't even estimate the work unless it's going to be, you know, unless somebody's going to pay you in a consulting model, like a sort of for an agile budget, which, you know, in a consulting model doesn't always happen. It's more of like a product company type opportunity. But so my point here is, is like, you know, we find that there's, there's always this friction between, do you put in the work, especially if you don't know you're going to get the job or do you somehow just try and, you know, guesstimate it. So can you maybe speak a little bit about all of that?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, um, as a book coach, I have a different perspective on it than I do, or maybe it's slightly evolved perspective than I do as an anthropologist, so I'll try to get to both. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody should work for free. I just want to put that out there. Um, but I do think you could have an effective 15, 30-minute conversation to make sure you're both understanding what you're talking about or doing some of that work to, like, okay, you say this is the problem, but let, what do you really mean by that? I think that should be done because if you if they say, I have problem X and you design a project around problem X, but it turns out it's Y, then you're still going to have to redo all that work anyway. So it's worth investing in conversations to at least make sure you're envisioning the same thing, talking the same language on the same page. Um, And so for what's interesting about figuring out how to run a business of book coaching, it's sort of asking, you have to ask yourself, how much can I give away for free? And I wish I had this quote at my fingertips, but somebody said something recently, you're not, you're not for free, you're not solving the problem for them. You're just helping them understand what their problem actually is. And I think that's a great way to think about it. So if I was going to talk with somebody about book coaching, um, I offer a 15 minute office hours chat where, you know, we usually spend more than 15 minutes, but that's where we can get to know each other a little bit. I can ask about their book idea. And it sort of, it becomes apparent to both of us like how crystal clear is the idea? How well formed is it? Do they have a real sense of the work it's going to take to write a book versus an essay? Um, So we can uncover a lot of things to think about in 15 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And I think that's time well spent. And then the next step would be you pay me for a certain amount of my time and my expertise and I help you uh, figure out the next steps and participate in your process. Got it. And so that was just a, I just want to add that that was a, that was kind of a deliberate business decision. I had to think all of that through, like how much time am I willing to give away Mm -hmm. um, in order to help them make a decision, whether they want to work with me. And so that, I think that applies to anthropologists. How much, how much time are you willing to invest to see if you can really work together? Sure.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, I still, there are still, I I still see some challenges there. Like again, in our case, you know, we're working oftentimes on like multi-year software Mm -hmm. projects because we work Mm -hmm. primarily in the B2B space. And so, you know we can't put in only like say 15, 30 minutes and really get anywhere close to understanding like the, you know the totality of the scope. And so it is something that we have gone back and forth on you know, over the years and have never come to you know quite frankly an adequate solution to addressing it other than you know if you think it's the project is going to turn into something, it's oftentimes worth investing the money you know, just so that then it really kicks off on a good footing. Um, but that's it's, that's a business dis- decision that's hard to make. It's, it's mm-hmm. not always uh you know it's it's not always clear for any of us what what to do in that space. So um, thanks for sharing that. It's it's always good to hear how other people approach it. I'd also like to you know in this sort of space of uh, of um, you know how you are. You know, this early stage of how you're like sort of maturing a relationship, I'd be curious to know, And I know you said like the sales cycle is long and you're, not, you're often more, you know, it's more business speak than anthropological speak, but how do you, or how, you know, over these years, how have you positioned the value of the services you provide? Is it around, you know, you need, you know, you need X and I'm going to help you get that? Or is it something deeper? Like, is it what anthropology can contribute
1: That's another really good question. Um, I would say on the surface that I tend to talk about, you know, solving problems, being able to contribute. Um, They want to know a certain thing, and I can help them with that, Um, which probably is hard for anthropologists to hear. Um, But I think there's a real strength in you know, the training of an anthropologist, it's not just research, although that's what we're trained mm-hmm. to do. It's, it is because we have a theoretical foundation or multiple theoretical foundations and uh, context and literature and all of those things. Um, so we bring that with us. I don't know if you said, well, you're also paying for my, whatever, my ability to do a literature review. Nobody's going to go for that, but you do bring that skill with you. So it's kind of built in there. I don't know if that answered your question.
0: It'd be no no yeah thanks it'd be funny to to uh, try and charge for a literature <laughs> review for as a discreet right. service for sure well, um, let me,
1: maybe I could answer it a different way I call myself an anthropologist because I think it invites curiosity and interest and it hints at kind of the depth of a disciplinary um, degree and experience I could call myself a researcher and I don't think anybody would have any questions about that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think maybe some of the value of anthropology is just having that, you know, it's, it's a thing of interest and it's a thing of value. And I just kind of put it out there for people to, 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 to take as they please. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe that didn't answer your question.
0: Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's always slightly exotic, or it's frequently slightly exotic to people. Right. So it, 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 you know, if you put it out there and you get an interesting response, then, you know, you can sort of dive in and sort of build on that and yeah. use it to your advantage. If, you know, if you know if somebody sort of looks the other way, well, you just move on in the conversation. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, to that end, it's all about really understanding, you know, to, to really observing, right. And understanding the, the sort of situation, which we're trained yeah. for. Yeah. Um, so the, um, in your in that same video, you made an interesting point where you say something like, I can't tell you about a typical day, but I can tell you about mm. a typical project. And so I oftentimes have asking have been asking people to tell me about like a typical, you know, week or whatever it may be. So I, I like the way you frame that. And um I think what you said in that video was helpful and might be, you know, good to To reiterate here, so for, you know, in your perspective in that video, most of your projects always follow like a similar process, Um, you know, the way that carries out, whether it's time-based geographic, you know, whatever it may be always is changing, but there's a sort of a similar process. So you want to maybe just elaborate on what that process looks like in industry?
1: Yeah. So um, I tend to work a lot with agencies versus the companies themselves. So, uh, you know, a client might come to an agency and say, "We want to do this thing, and it, it's going to involve a lot of research." And so, the agency will involve me. Um, so, by that point, the the person at the agency who brings me in has an understanding of the project and can communicate that to me, and say, "Help me." help me figure out how much research is going to be needed to solve this problem. Um, so there's the kind of helping finalize the proposal bit of it. Um, I may be involved with some sales calls just so that they get, to, they get used to seeing me and understand that I'm going to be part of the project and that I have the skill set that they needed. That's why they brought me on. Um, <clears throat> and then it's the mechanics of like, okay, we know we need to talk to stakeholders first, to help us determine the consumers we need to talk to um, and how much time do we need to reach them and schedule them, um, is there travel, how many populations, um, collecting the data, analyzing it, and then delivering it. Sometimes it's a report and sometimes it's maps and models and sometimes it's um, uh, prototypes. So I would say that the things that I've mentioned are the general stages and those are similar every time, but then to sort of the details, it could be all hurry up and let's get this started. And oh, wait, you know, our lawyers have to review the contracts and oh, wait, we, you know, we don't have funding yet. So we need to wait for that to happen. So you never know what each day is going to bring, but you try to plan for it anyway.
0: You know, one thing I've, I've never really dug into so far with anybody, at least in detail is, um, is, you know, estimating and budgeting. And you just alluded to some of it there. So, you know that's something that maybe we don't have to do in such a a uh, defined way in academia right our timeline is much 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 longer and we're you know a little we're afforded time to do research that we're typically not in in industry and we oftentimes are working on you know a budget that is usually smaller than would be desirable in lots of cases to do mm-hmm. you know. To, to maybe get to some of the outcomes that a lot of clients want. Um, and so I'd be curious to know, you know, how do you go about helping your clients understand, you know, you can, you know, for this, in this time frame and for this budget, I can do X, you know, or ultimately for this, you know, I can do Y and, you know, and how do you navigate that conversation and, you know, just help them realize like what, what they might actually get out of it.
1: I think, one, you have to have um, a handle on your value or what you charge, sort of uh, using – I'm hesitating a little bit because I don't want to say, like, figure out what you want to make per hour and then use that as a basis because that's not the only thing that goes into the calculation, but it's kind of like, you know, what – what would it cost for five hours of your time? And then how would you spend that time? Um, So usually uh, a client will say, I have a budget in this range. And that at least gives you something to work with. So you can say, okay, we had a client come to us once who said, like, I have $5,000 and I want to do this huge research project. And it's like, you can't do a huge research project for $5,000. You just can't. It's not feasible. So being able to explain why, um, which I hope is obvious, but if it's not, like it just, you know, it takes a lot of time to figure out how to do it, who to do it with, then to do it, then to analyze it. Um, So that's why $5,000 is not enough. Um, But if somebody comes with a, you know, a number that perhaps is a little bit low, you can still think of like, okay, if this is the, the pool of resources that we have, how would we distribute these resources? And can we accomplish what we need to do with those resources? Um, and you can do that if you have kind of an an estimate of what it costs for one person to do this task for how many hours.
0: Yeah, thanks. And so, in there, you know, aside from the budgeting estimate estimating, there's also the then the need to you know, manage that on an ongoing basis, right? And so it speaks to project management, which you know, again, you listen the the in the book coaching, and so um, you yeah, know, that's something that has come up on this podcast so far, but I try to stress it because. You know, it's, I always like to point out that, especially for somebody who's only been in academia so far, that there's a lot of other tasks that we do that are, you know, that are not research. And so in the course of you running a business, you know, what did that split look like? You know, was, uh, not between necessarily project, just project management and research say, but maybe between all other activities and research.
1: Um, I, you know, I learned this by doing it, uh, You just learn how long it takes to do a certain thing. And then sort of the ebb and flow of your own business. For me, it's super slow in the summers and crazy busy in the fall. That's just, you know, I figured that out after looking at the pattern over a couple of years. Um, So I could easily go three or four months without a research project. And during that time, I'm doing business development and trying to find new clients or whatever, working on my back-end stuff or marketing or whatever it is I need to do. Um, And then it all happens, you know, then everybody wants you to work for them at the same time in the fall. Uh, So I think all I can talk about is from my perspective as a, you know, a company of one, the only person doing business development, the only person doing the research, um, I probably spend half the year working and half the year not working. You know, working on the invisible stuff, working on the, the stuff that isn't actually research. Um, so, I don't know if that's true for everybody. Uh, I don't know if that's true in your case, but uh, yeah, there's. I would say that 50% of my time is billable and 50% isn't.
0: And so... I'm curious to know how has your anthropology training actually helped you, you know, maybe start and and run your business. You know, I know you said early on that you you initially wanted to get a job in advertising right away, right? And of course, you know, there's a marketing advertising component to running your business. So how have you brought your, your you know your own training, your own skills into to running your business?
1: I think. I think what's really interesting is that starting another business, the book coaching business, I feel like I know so much more this time around than I did the first time, which was seven, eight years ago. Um, So I think thinking about customers as users and, you know, trying to understand their needs from their perspective. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious, right? Uh, An anthropologist should be able to think about the other person, um, and the needs that they may have that need to be uncovered. Um, but I don't think I knew that the first time around, it was more like, here I am, here's anthropology, let me work for you, pretty please. But this time it's more like, okay, how is, how is a potential client going to perceive this? What are their problems and how, how can I help them
0: solve them? And so using that, maybe to jump into the, to the book coaching. So, well, actually, let me just step back one second. So you, you know, you describe yourself at least in, you know, in the title tag of, you know, your website and elsewhere on the website, anthropologist, you know, book coach and author. So to go just back to the anthropology piece for a second, is there a reason, you know, aside from maybe what your degree stated, uh, is there a reason you don't use something like business anthropologist considering the work you do? You know, is there a reason you just picked anthropologist?
1: I, probably for um, superficial reasons, I think business anthropologist may be a little too confusing. Whereas anthropologist has just the right amount of intrigue, and I think I know what that is. The business anthropologist is like what? Um, plus, trying to fit business anthropologist on a line—that's a lot of letters. So you gotta, you know, I have a long last name. Anthropology is a long word. Like, there's a lot of words, letters there. So try to keep it condensed.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, you know, it's something I personally, I'm always like tweaking and, and toying with and, and, testing. And it's, it, you know, the, the concept of identity comes up a lot, not mm-hmm. just, I ask everybody more or less about it, but it also comes up in all the kinds of meetups that we're involved in here and other such events. And everybody has a different take on it. Uh, what I'm interested, you know, is, so you pick just anthropology and you're very, you know, overt about that. You lead with that. Other people very much have um, you know, moved away from that and instead might focus on like, you know, UX research and, you know, everybody has found their own way and that's fine. I'm not suggesting that there's one right way or another, but I just like hearing the rationale behind everybody else's decision. Mm. And in your case, you know, again, you have these three things, anthropologist, book coach, author. And so, you know, you have a lot of, you know, you have two businesses now in a sense, right? The research and practice, the research practice and the, 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 uh, uh, the book coaching. And then you have this other sort of identity of author, which, you know, you're doing sort of, you know, um, presumably outside of that, you know, for fun, whatever it may be. But, um, how, you know, how do you, have you had any struggle like figuring out like, you know, what, what those three things were and have you tested that over the years and have you tried something else?
1: Um, I, I, okay. So I, um, I am currently in a book coaching certification program. I'm in trying to get, um, I'm coaching someone through a process and I have to demonstrate that I can coach someone through a process to be uh, certified. So I'm in the middle of that with a client, but I'm also working with a couple of other people at the same time. Um, And as part of that, there is some business coaching. You know, how are you going to uh, market and position yourself as a book coach? And so it's something I I worked on for several months. Like, what is my book coaching identity? And I couldn't divorce the anthropology from it. It didn't make sense to me to be a book coach without also being an anthropologist. And um, the, the author part of it is something that, you know, I have a book out in the world. It's been out since 2008. And I realized that that is... Um, there you go. That's the, the original. Old first now edition, it's a, oh, yeah. I forgot to grab a copy, but uh, yeah, there's a second edition with a much nicer
0: um, <laughs> yeah,
1: and more new and improved information on the inside too. Um, yeah, so I felt like these are the these are the three components of my identity. So it's really important to me to have that in my my brand, the businesses that I do. Like I to me, they're all important parts of my identity.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the the book coaching piece tell us why you know you think anthropology relates to that and maybe maybe more specifically how do you bring anthropology into the coaching process
1: I think there's a couple of things. Um, one is I have done a lot of work with an information architecture agency and learning about information architecture um, is a lot like learning about how to write a book because it's it's about how people, Um, convey information in a logical and meaningful way so that a user or a reader can find their way through it in a logical and meaningful and useful way. Um, So trying to play with that theme and bringing it into book coaching, I think it it feels natural to me and it makes a lot of sense. uh, The way you organize information, you can do it in a digital space or you can do it in a book. Um, And I also think because my own career path was uh, non-linear, maybe non-traditional, um, I think that a lot of people who want to write books are like that. They they aren't people who, you know, start at, you know, they went right from high school to college to graduate school to, to marriage to family to blah, blah, blah. Like it wasn't a linear path for them. Um, so I think that makes it very relatable. Uh, you know, a linear path is not the only path out there. Um, and then I just think as an anthropologist, you know, part of our education and training is producing written materials. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, without knowing that it was rigorous writing training, I got a lot of rigorous writing training along the way. Um, so I think, you know, I couldn't be a book coach or an author without the anthropology and
0: vice versa. Got it. Great answer. And I um, I presume you would coach anybody, but do you have a focus on anthropologists or is it wide open?
1: Um. It- I like to say, most broadly, I coach aspiring authors to write and prepare to publish nonfiction. So there's the aspiring authors part of it. You know, if you're an experienced writer and published author, you probably wouldn't need to work with me as your book coach. Um, There's the nonfiction part of it, and I'm focusing on memoir and narrative nonfiction and getting into the self-help and how-to prescriptive nonfiction too. So if somebody was writing a a book on how to do something, uh, I would be a good coach for that. And also on my website, I specifically state non-traditional and non-linear career people because I I think I work well with creatives and designers and entrepreneurs and solopreneurs uh, because I've been doing that for so many years now. So I, I do think I have an ideal client. Hopefully those keywords will attract them. But it's also about, you know, you have to meet and talk and see if there's, you know, just if there's energy there. You know, I'm most likely going to believe in your project But it's like, do you want to work with someone like me? Can I give you what you need as a writer to help you succeed?
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, okay. So, what do you give? Um, You know, the idea of a book coach, until I heard you say it, was something I had never heard of. Now, uh, I'm not sure if that's, you know, if that's the norm or not. You know, I really don't know. But can you tell us, like, do, well, first off, uh, do you think people know what a book coach is? And, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what what you do.
1: So, I think... Book coaching is a lot like anthropology and that it's like, what is that? Those are words that I haven't used before. Um, so I think it's, I mean, I think it's, uh, it makes sense because it's helping someone write a book, conceiving of a book as a project and how do you do it? Because it's kind of overwhelming. Like, I want to write a book. That's a, that's a huge undertaking. So helping people understand how big of a task it is and then how to break down the, the tasks of it into manageable bits And the first part of it is kind of understanding what is the core idea of your book and who is it for. Um, You have to know that before you can write because otherwise you're just writing, writing, writing off into space. You need to kind of have a target, have an idea, someone you're writing to. And the book has to do something for them, whether it's entertaining as a piece of fiction or um, trying to find a connection through telling your life story in a memoir or, you know, teaching someone how to declutter their house in a nonfiction book. Um, you have to have a purpose and so helping them figure out their purpose, getting really clear on the idea and then giving them a roadmap for how to complete it. I think that's that's what differentiates a book coach from any other type of writing coach out there.
0: And you do make clear on your website that you are not going to write it for them and that you cannot guarantee you know a publisher um, which seems to make sense though. I'm sure it will come up somewhere along the way. Right. Um, but how, so that, that much is you know clear to me, but you also have a distinction between book coach and editor. So I think that, you know, could be good for people to hear, you know, maybe we just want to touch on that.
1: Yeah. I think, um, editing is inherent in the book coaching, but maybe book coaching is not inherent in editing. Um, so I think a book coach has to use an editor's eye, you know, does this make sense? Does it work? Does your Is your story coherent? Is it logical? Uh, not that it has to be logical, but there has to be kind of a, there has to be an order to it. So an editor can do that. Um, the book coach also has to be able to do that, but also think about the the publishing industry, um, how to market and pitch it when it comes to that, whether self-publishing is an option, Um also, the cheerleading, it's a long-term relationship that you get into with a book coach. Uh, for me, we would work in two-month um, increments, um, and we can stack those together for a long-term, or you can take breaks every two months to kind of work on your own and then come back to me. But it's its a long-term relationship with uh, a lot of cheerleading. There will be long, dark nights of the soul where writers just think, I can never do this. This is horrible, you know, whatever. And a book coach is going to be there for you and say, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You've got this. Um and when doubts come up to work around them and when, um, writer's block comes up to work around that. So there's a lot of, uh, I think skills that go a little bit beyond editing and into more of a, an interpersonal relationship.
0: Got it. So if somebody, you know, who's listening, wants to write a book and they're going to come to you, what would the ideal, I mean, you have to have that conversation, make sure you're a right fit. Let's assume that's, you know, that's going to happen and you're going to move past that. What would be, like, the ideal thing for somebody to show up with? You know, what what should they have to bring to the table?
1: I think they should have um, a seed of an idea. I think a lot of people think, I want to write a book someday. But you kind of have to have, like, what is the seed? Is it... um you know, is there? Did you solve a problem in your life or somebody else's? Or, you know, is why is your story interesting? Why do you want to tell it? Why are you the right person to tell it? Um, and then I think knowing who your audience is—that's—it sounds pretty easy, but um, we'd actually spend quite a bit of time on that in some of our sessions. Um, you know, who is this person? Where do they live? What is their their age bracket? Who who do they talk to? What podcasts do they listen to? What books do they read? Um, and I had an interesting experience with uh, a writer I was working with. Um, she was struggling a little bit with her her pages, her writing. But when she would write to me in an email, like her writing came alive. And I was like, this is exactly why you need to know who your reader is. Because when you're talking to a person, your writing just is so powerful. So if you as the writer have that ideal reader, your target in mind, that's going to help your writing. So that's why we do that work first. Um, so if anybody who wanted to talk about writing a book, to start conceiving of who is my reader and get really concrete about it, almost like, um, you know, how personas uh, are a value in the research and design process because you're designing for somebody. It's the same thing with a book. You're designing your book for somebody. Yeah, great.
0: And so, you have, so your second edition of your book just came out, Designing Anthropology Career. Um, So, congratulations. Thank Um, you. So, or I should say, came out end of last year. Um, So, why did you decide to update it at this point in time? What has changed, or you know, what was it a change with you? Was it a change in the industry?
1: I think, I think it was time. Uh, Most books get updated every couple of years, and ours hadn't for ten or so years. Um, And it was, you know, we were busy and. It was just it was one of those things where we knew it was gonna be a lot of work. Um, but it needed to be done. It just got to the point where it was like, okay, the the old examples aren't true anymore and so much has changed. Like in the original edition we talked about how to save your materials and it was like print out hard copies and put them in a file cabinet. It's like <laughs> what? So we just had to update a lot of stuff, and I think careers have changed and industries have changed. So we needed to the, the book to reflect that to, to be more useful to students in in school today or career changers today.
0: And, um, I guess what I'd be curious, so, you know, now that you're a book coach, you know, you, you've already gone through this process yourself, essentially, you've now, in a a sense, gone through it twice, but, um, what did you learn, you know, like along the way, or what challenges did you have, um, because I'm assuming you didn't work with a book coach back then, I'm assuming you sort of forced your way through and you learned some things and now, you know, you're going to share with everybody else. But so what was that experience like for you the first time going through it? How hard is it? And
1: Well, I mean, I think, I think any writing project is hard, whether you're writing a three page essay or a book. Um, but I think the principles are the same. Like you have to know what it's about. You have to know where you're going with it. You have to know who you're writing for. Um, and I think the first time, rewrote the book it was so exciting like oh my god this is going to be a book um and I got such pleasure out of working on it um and then this time another important factor that went into the revision was both uh Sherry Briller and I are at different points in our lives like we're well into our careers now um so having that perspective was really valuable um and for me this time this was right about the same time where I was doing more personal writing and um Discovering that there was such a thing as a book coach, it made me think, like, what do what do I want to do with my career? Um, and I, I found that you know books are a big part of it. I love writing, and I love working on books and making them come into being. Um, so it was really it was really nice to be able to reflect on my own career at that moment of rewriting the book and think, okay, how is my career going to change um, going forward?
0: That's that's a nice connection to have, you yeah. know. So. Coming up, you also have a workshop at the Society for Applied Anthropology um, titled Academic Backgrounds, Serving Work Outside Academia, Proven Strategies for Forging Your Career. Um, So for anybody listening, you want to maybe tell everybody what that's about and maybe why they should join?
1: Yeah. um, I think that I'm assuming that um, students and uh, those with PhDs who are facing the realities of trying to find a job still need some help trying to translate what they did as academics into what they can do out in industry. So, um, it's an hour long workshop. I'll talk about, you know, how I, how I went through my career and then the things that I did that worked out really well for me that I think will serve anyone. So I have five concrete tips that people can do to kind of translate their background into something that's going to help them land a job.
0: Great. And that's uh, Thursday, Thursday, the, what's the date? 18th,
1: right, 18th, next Thursday, the 18th at five o'clock. And if I think the website is sfaa.org, they should have um, links to the the conference and the workshop.
0: Great. And so...
1: sfaa.net.
0: Yeah, it's changed. Yeah. It might even be practice. They changed the whole domain. They changed... Yeah. Uh, I'll link.
1: <laughs> I'll send you the, the correct link. Got to be precise.
0: So, um, so thanks for sharing that in, in closing, where, is there anything else Like, I guess, you know, any other projects that you're working on that you'd like to bring up?
1: Not particularly. Um, I guess I, I guess I would say that for me, um, figuring out that I wanted to kind of subdivide my time in between research and consulting and book coaching and writing, that was kind of a big, um, pivot point for me. Um, and I want to empower anyone who, uh, is just thinking about, you know, what, what am I doing with my life? Um, you are in charge, you know, you get to make decisions. Of course, we all have constraints about, you know, we have to earn money to support our families and our lifestyles, but, you know, you, you can make a lot of, you can take a lot of action. Um, and it just requires a little bit of soul searching to figure out, you know, what's the right balance for me? What are the things I want to do? Um, and what have I yet to accomplish?
0: I think that's a good question to inspire that kind of reflection. Yeah, great. Well, we'll leave it with that. And um, I, last, I guess last thing, though, is where should everybody find you?
1: You can find me at my website, which is my first name and last name, amygoldmacher.com. And also on social media, um, Instagram and Twitter, at Solid and on LinkedIn and Facebook under my name, Amy Goldmacher.
0: Great. Well, Amy, thanks very much. Appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, Share and subscribe. See you next time.